Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A science story, huh? It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everybody, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. Just a reminder before we get started with today's episode that Story Collider is in the midst of our end-of-the-year fundraising drive. This has been such a challenging past couple of years for the Story Collider. If you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please go to storycollider.org donate and help support our work in 2022. We're so glad that you're all part of our story. All right, returning to today's episode... Over the past 11 years of Story Collider, I've met so many scientists from all over the world, and every now and then, I'll overhear someone say to one of them, you don't look like a scientist. And I wonder, what does that mean? What does it mean to look like a scientist? In today's stories, both of our storytellers are exploring exactly that in their own lives. Our first story is from Edith Gonzalez, Story Collider's Science Advisory Fellow. It was recorded last September at Caveat in New York City in front of a small, private, masked, and vaccinated audience. The theme that night was bouncing back. My kitten heels went clickety-clickety-click down the industrial green hallways of Hunter College. I had just come from my very fancy job in a boutique on Madison Avenue. It was the early 1990s. So I want you to picture the really mean sales girls in Pretty Woman who would not serve Julia Roberts. That was my job. And I was running to get to the chair of the anthropology department's office. Even though it was after hours, he frequently stayed late, Dr. Bates because I wanted him to sign off on my paperwork to be admitted into the accelerated master's degree program for archeology. span And I was running down the hallway. Now I really wanted to be in this program because I had spent the summer excavating a site in Brooklyn um, after not telling my parents that I had switched my major from chemistry pre-med to anthropology, because if you're a first-generation college student from a working-class family, um, you don't, there are only like four majors you can have, like accounting and pre-med, and maybe you can go for a nursing degree or to teach, but anthropology is not on that list. So I'm booking down the hallway, and I realize the only job you can get, uh, in my mind, as an anthropologist, to be a professor. And to be a professor, you need a PhD. And to get a PhD, you need a master's degree. 
I think. I don't know. I've never really known anybody who was a PhD before. So I bang on his door, and my little heels are silent, and I have my Chanel red lipstick on. I'm ready for him. And the door flies open, and out comes this cloud of unfiltered cigarette smoke and cheap red wine fumes and condescension. And I said, and I present him this sheaf of paperwork that he just needs to sign off on for me to get admitted into this program. He holds all the power here. And as I extend it towards him, he gives me this up and down look and looks at the cover sheet as it's coming towards him and he doesn't quite take it. He just pushes it back towards me and says, you have too many credits and closes the door. And he's right. Because in order to apply for this program, you're supposed to do it in the first semester of your sophomore year. And I am in the middle of my junior year at this point. But I kind of don't really see a way around it. Because I don't have the funds and wherewithal to do a full master's program. I need to do this one that is accelerated because of, you know, practical working class things. Um, you know, I, I only have enough money to pursue it if I can do it in this very narrow time frame. So most people would think, well, hey, how about a student loan? But from, for Puerto Rican people, borrowing money from the government rates up there with being a serial killer or a child pornographer or being mean to your mother. So I stomp off down the hall, regroup, and I decide to go back. I have Tuesdays off from my fancy job. I decide to go back on a Tuesday when I'm working in the lab. And I go in first thing in the morning, so I know he has not yet been drinking with my little sheaf of paperwork, and I'm dressed like the rest of the, in, in sort of the anthropology dude bro grad student uniform of the early 90s, which is ripped jeans and Chuck Taylors and some really soft, faded, grungy flannel that you just picked up from some, you know, outdoor festival show laying in the mud somewhere. And so I go in and to his office first thing in the morning, and the door is open, I'm like, welcome in, welcome. And I walk in, and he's behind his desk, still smoking, but clearly not drunk yet, and I hand him this sheaf of paperwork. And before, and I'm ready, I'm ready to argue my case and, you know, my, my to defend my scholastic aptitude, and I give it to him, and without really looking at me, he just signs it and hands it back. And I was like, oh. What just happened? And I think he has no idea that I'm the person who was here last week. That must be it. So I get accepted into this program, and it's supposed to take two years. And like I said, I don't have the money to get a regular master's degree, but I also don't have the money to do a two-year program. I'm going to have to do this in one year with a full-time job. So I begin the most grueling year of my life in which I sleep four hours a night to grind it out. And I get through the summer program, I get through the first semester, I get through the winter program, sending in all my PhD school uh, program applications and 
and taking studying and taking the GRE, which by the way, I got a perfect score on the GRE if we're gonna talk about overachievers. But by the time I get to the last semester, I'm so burned out that I can't, I can barely function and and get to my job. And and I realize that the very last class I have is this intense theoretical um it's an all anthropological theory class with Professor Bates. And I have to pass this class or else I will not be admit I will I won't graduate and then I won't be admitted into my PhD program. So the semester starts and I'm like, okay, Edith, you can do this. You just gotta hang on for another 15 weeks. You can gut it out. And it's a seminar class. So that means there are seven students in the class, I'm one, and they're the six sort of uniformed dude bro <laughs> anthropology graduate student guys, you know, beard optional. And, <laughs> and so I go in there and the way the class works is there are readings every week and each student does a presentation of that week's readings um, as, you know, when is your turn? So I quickly sign up to go first. I love to go first in things. Um, to go first because I know I'll still have energy at the beginning of the semester. And so I do my presentations right at the beginning of the class. And as the semester progresses, I begin to fall behind on the readings when other people are presenting. So if I haven't done the readings, my strategy is sort of to just, you know, nod or take lots and lots of notes because in my mind I'm imagining that eventually I'm going to have time to read these readings, but that becomes this sort of faint and distant, you know, dream as as the semester continues. And when I at the first I'm still trying to keep my class participation going, and I ask questions that are met by the other students in this class, especially this guy Matthew. Uh, with derision and like why am I asking such a simple question and how stupid must I be that I don't understand this basic concept and when they begin to do slide presentations I will frequently put my hand on my chin um, I, and fall asleep and as the semester progresses Professor Bates lets us know that we don't have to write a paper for this class. And at first, I was really excited by that notion. But then he says, we have, we're going to have an in-class final exam in those little blue books like they used to have in olden times with a pencil. And I'm thinking, holy crap, OK. Um, I, I, I just, I think I had a momentary, like, I just blocked it out of my memory because there was just no way that I'd be able to ever catch up with the readings. And as it's getting closer to exam date, he lets us know that we will have to answer one question. And now I'm really beginning to panic because I've done maybe 30% of the readings. So if he, like, I, I just don't know how I'm gonna be able to answer anything well enough to pass the class. So I decide that a couple days before the final, I will just cram. I will just go to the library and get that box of reserved readings, and I will just cram as much of this into my head as I possibly can. And throughout the semester, as I've been sort of meekly hiding amongst these 
dude bros, I have been sort of disguising myself because I never wanted Professor Bates to connect me back to that first girl that he saw in his office with the Chanel lipstick and the kitten heels. So I have been rushing from work to wash my face and put on my anthro grad student uniform to blend in. And I'm sort of just nowhere in this. I'm feeling like I don't, I'm trying to remember why the hell am I doing this in the first place? It's exhausting and awful. And as I get up to the day of the final, it turns out I couldn't take time off from work. And even on the very day of the final, when I was supposed to be off for the whole day, I actually had to work in the morning. So about an hour before, I managed to escape work, and I run to the library, and I get this big box of the folders of all the readings. And I start flipping through them, and there's just no way in an hour that I can read 60% of the coursework. And in this moment of exhaustion, all of the extraneous information just kind of fell away. And I had a flash of brilliance. What did Professor Bates say at any point during the semester is the question I asked myself. And I was like, he gave one talk about kinship. Now, in anthropological theory, kinship is the system by which we name the people to whom we are related, either by blood or by marriage. And you can tell a person's closeness to you based on how you name them, how you call them. And so I pull out this folder on kinship, and I begin to read how Leslie Spire in 1925 determined that there are six forms of human kinship. There are Sudanese, Iroquois, Hawaiian, Eskimo, Omaha, and Crow. And I'm like, fine, I can learn that in an hour. And I dig in, and I learn the kinship systems. I study the little kinship charts, thinking I only have to remember this for the next three hours. And I go running to the classroom, clicking along, because I've come straight from work, and I haven't had time to change into my anthro grad student uniform. And I walk in with my Chanel lipstick and my very cute Calvin Klein dove gray slip dress, some sling bags. And the dudes are like, what happened to you? And Bates doesn't comment, and he passes out the little blue books, and he passes out the question, and the question is, describe the six known kinship systems. And I'm like, So I flip open the little book, and everyone, oh, they're, they're frantically writing in the book. And I write the sentence, the six known kinship systems in human society are Sudanese, Iroquois, Hawaiian, Eskimo, Omaha, and Crow. And then I realize I don't need to write an essay. I can just draw the diagrams. So I draw the little diagrams. Takes me 10 minutes. And I walk up to Professor Bates with my little book. And as I walk up to him, I realize that this entire semester that I have been hiding, he's known all along exactly who I am. And when I give him the book, he says, Edith, do you have a question? And I said, no. And he opens the book, and he flips through my six pages. 
And he closes it and he said, that's A plus work. Have a great summer. So I turned and clickety, as I'm clickety clacking my way out of the classroom, I stop to adjust the slingback of my shoe. And I hear Matthew, asshole Matthew in the class go, you're done? He starts to scream at me, you're done? How can you be finished? And Bates says, how are you not? That was Edith Gonzalez. Edith is an assistant professor of archaeology at the University of Buffalo, studying bioprospecting and experimental agriculture in the 18th century. In addition to being StoryCollider's inaugural science advisory fellow, Edith is also an assistant professor of archaeology at the University of Buffalo, studying bioprospecting and experimental agriculture in the 18th century English-speaking Caribbean. Again, before we continue, the StoryCollider is in the midst of its end-of-the-year fundraising campaign this week. We're a small nonprofit 5013C organization, and we depend on the support of our listeners to continue producing these stories in this podcast. If you want to support stories like the ones we're sharing today, please go to storycliderorg slash donate and be a part of our story. If there's someone you would like to honor with your donation, you can dedicate it to them as a special gift, and we'll celebrate that on our social media with hashtag MyScienceStory. We are also, for the first time ever, selling merch on our website. If you would like to buy a StoryCollider hoodie, t-shirt, or tote bag, you can find those at storycliderorg slash store. Your purchases help to support StoryCollider's work. Again, we're so grateful to everyone who helps to make this work possible. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our next story is from Brianna A. Baker. It was recorded in September in front of a small private audience at Caveat in New York City. This show was held in collaboration with Black and Mental Health. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here and doing this uh, storytelling thing for the first time really live, so. But I want you all to picture 2004 in rural North Carolina, where I was born and raised. I'm from a very small town. Uh, I think maybe it had about 6,000 people at the time, and about 80 to 90% of those people were white. So as you can imagine, it was a very lonely experience. In the South, they 
separate children based on if you are a smart kid or a dumb kid. And <laughs> luckily, I was labeled a smart kid. So that meant that my classroom racial makeup was basically as white as the walls. But it didn't matter because I enjoyed school. I was seven years old in 2004 and about in second grade. And I loved school. I mean, I really liked it. I got so excited for the first day of school, picking out my outfits, going back to school shopping, all that kind of stuff really excited me. I loved reading and writing. And at one point, I even enjoyed math. It's crazy. <laughs> and everything was great. I had a lot of friends. Um, I was very well adjusted in the school setting. Things were going really well until one day, my friend Ashley, she was blonde, she was pretty, she was perfect, decided that she was going to hand out the invitations to her birthday party during our reading circle. And what a reading circle is, is basically all of these squirmy little second graders get around in a circle on the carpet and we read together. And so it was a very big deal that she got this special permission to hand out these birthday party invitations in the middle of the school day, in the middle of the reading circle. So you knew it was a big deal. So we're all sitting around, probably around 15 kids, sitting in the circle and Ashley stands up in the middle. And she starts announcing the details of this birthday party and she's like, this year I'm turning eight years old, which means I'm having a sleepover. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> This is great. I've only been to one sleepover in my life. It was actually a half sleepover where you, you put on your pajamas and you act like you're gonna sleep over, but then your parents pick you up. <laughs> so I'm so excited for a real sleepover because I know that this is like real eight-year-old stuff, you know? Like I'm ready to take this on. And I'm just like bursting with excitement at the idea of going to this party. And so she's wearing this like purple dress. She's standing in the center of the reading circle. She has a little brown like satchel bag that she starts pulling out these glittery pink invitations. And you know, at this point, I'm just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> so she starts pulling out the invitations and she hands them off one by one to our peers. All the girls in the class um, are supposed to receive an invitation. And so she hands one to Olivia, and she hands one to Elizabeth, and then to Savannah, until they're all gone. And I'm sitting there, kind of confused, because I'm empty-handed. And I should have an invitation, but I don't. But I'm not alarmed, because me and Ashley are really good friends. So I'm like, you know what? I bet she's going to give one to me very special way, maybe after school or something. She didn't forget about me, of course, because we're friends. Like, me and Ashley are really good friends. So now the class is starting to line up for recess, and I'm like, okay, I can't wait till after school to ask her. I'm just going to ask her now. Like, I need this invitation. I'm really excited to go. So I go up to her. She's still standing. I get up, and I'm like, hey, Ashley. She has her back turned to me. No response. Okay, maybe she didn't hear me. Ashley. Still nothing. Like, okay. I tap her on the shoulder, hoping that I can physically grab her attention. And I'm like, Ashley, what about my invitation? And she does this little, like, sly heel turn to me. And she's like, oh, my dad said I can't invite black people to my party because they're yucky. Okay? 
okay. She said it with such confidence that I felt like I had to accept it. And I was so confused at the succession of these words, black and yucky. She said them like they were one and the same, like I should know inherently that black people are yucky. But I'm also confused because I'm black, right? But I didn't know that black was so painful. And I didn't know that black meant being yucky. And I'm just so confused. My chest is starting to get very tight. But I also know I can't challenge a white person on something related to race. I can't speak about race because this is 2004 and colorblindness is the mentality. We don't talk about race. So we go to recess and we play because that's what I'm supposed to do. And I don't know if I have permission to bring up this race thing that really just hurt me, but I'm seven years old, so I don't know. When we get back into the classroom, I'm still feeling this weird stomach knot feeling. My chest is still tight. I'm still feeling like I'm in pain. And I remember looking to the teacher who was in earshot of the conversation that Ashley and I had had where she said that I was yucky. I looked at the teacher and I'm just hoping that somehow she'll be able to understand and decipher and uncode what is going on with me internally because I am distressed. I had never heard black people being called yucky before and I didn't know what that meant for myself. But the teacher didn't say anything. And so that's when I learned that maybe I shouldn't either. And I just kept it inside. Now I study something called racial identity development where we call that first experience with racism an encounter. And now I know that that's what I had. It's basically when a black child realizes that they're gonna be treated unfairly or as subhuman, as inferior to their white counterparts based on the color of their skin. And for black children, that happens as early as three to four years old. But for white people, they may never have to reckon with what it means to be white in America. That experience happened to me over and over and over again, but I never talked about them because I didn't know what to say. And I really didn't know if I was allowed to talk about the fact that I was being hurt at school by classmates who wanted to exclude me or, or throw things at me or mess with my hair. I just kept it all inside and by middle school, gone was that girl who loved school so much, the one who was so excited for back to school. In middle school, I dreaded school. I hated it. There was two years that I didn't look in the mirror if I could help it because I hated what I saw. I hated this hair that seemed to defy gravity even though I tried to fry it <laughs> to a crisp so that it would stay down. I hated my skin because it was so dark and so dirty and those words of yucky stuck with me for so long. The kids would make fun of me all the time. They would say that my body, because I was even thinner and more frail than I am now, they would say that I looked like a crack addict. Which is funny because Ashley, who had a similar build but happened to be white, was somehow a model. Middle school was rough, <laughs> to say the least. There was one time I remember sitting at my desk completely unprovoked doing my work and there was this class clown type kid roaming around the classroom doing whatever, teachers didn't care. And he comes up to me and he goes, hey Brie, I know you're always trying to be white, but the whitest thing about you will always be the ash on your legs. And I just took it because at this point I had learned that that's what 
I had to accept as my life and what I had to go about the world knowing and understanding and feeling about myself, this hatred that I had for myself. When I was 12 years old, I walked around like I was the ugliest thing that could have possibly been created. I remember I used to pray at night to God and ask him if he could just write this wrong in creating me because surely he meant to design something better. I think that in middle school, it's safe to say that I was clinically depressed. My parents had started to notice, you know, when I couldn't keep up with my hygiene as well as I should have been. And I started failing in school and not being able to keep up in my classes. And they would say things like, what's wrong with you? How do you think this makes us look? I wanted to let them know that I was trying as hard as I could, but my parents had moved from predominantly black spaces to this white neighborhood to give us better opportunities. So I'm sure it felt like a slap in the face, but I was hurting so bad, I was trying so hard. But I couldn't say that because in the black community, especially then, we didn't talk about depression. Definitely not in childhood. I mean, I had everything that I needed in theory. My parents loved me, they gave me everything I needed, but it was so hard to go about the school day where you know we spend most of our time as children, feeling this incredible weight of being black and not even knowing who to talk to or how to express what I was feeling. And mind you, this had been happening since 2004. In high school, my depression and anxiety turned into something a little bit different. It's what we call high-functioning depression and anxiety. And, you know, somehow I still managed to do well on standardized tests because I had failed middle school, but my standardized test scores had allowed me to still be in honors courses in high school. And so in high school, I decided that it was going to be academic achievement that would distance me the most from my blackness that I tried so hard to shed and run from. So in high school, I would take on a bunch, you know, five AP classes, three varsity sports, student body president. I'm trying to do it all because black people don't do that, right? The black kids are the ones who are sitting in detention and silent lunch, but I'm going to be the one that can lead. I'm going to be the one that can, can do all of these things at once. And then people are going to start to notice me as Brie and not black Brie, and I can finally be myself, right? But of course, that didn't work either. Because when you live life trying to defy a stereotype, you'll never be enough. High school was a lot as well. There were times where I would cry myself to sleep and be like, you know, I want to go to prom, but I know none of these white boys are going to ask me. So I just have to act like, you know, I don't want to go. <laughs> High school was really rough as well, but things changed for me about four days before my high school graduation. We had an assignment in my English class where we had to write about any topic um, and present it to the class. It was a three-page essay on anything we wanted, and it was called This I Believe. And I think that I, knowing who I was, I wrote it weeks in advance on musical theater or something like that. I don't know. But four days before my high school graduation, I learned that Khalif Browder, a black man, who allegedly stole a, black, a backpack, had been sentenced to uh, years of solitary confinement. He killed himself when he got out. And I remember getting that news. My peers, of course, thought nothing of it. I don't even know if they know who Khalif Browder is today, to be honest. 
But I remember reading this article on him and thinking to myself, wow, I see myself in him. And the fact that he chose death over being a young black person in America says something. That story really stuck with me. And I think that it was then that the wheels in my head started turning and the puzzle pieces started getting put together about black mental health and what it means to be black in this society, in this context, especially for me. You know, I hadn't had a black teacher in my life. I didn't even get black classmates until college. So my life was very, very, very white. I started to think, were there chains on my mind that prevented me from living and thinking and emoting as freely as my white peers? Were my thoughts being challenged by forces that were out of my control, such as oppression and racism? Was none of this my fault? Was there something outside? Because for years, I had been blaming Brie. Something's wrong with Brie. So that time, <laughs> during that time, I decided to write my essay on the beauty of blackness, something I don't think I've ever acknowledged before that point. Because I had to think to myself, how beautiful are we to continue shining despite all of this adversity that we face? And how strong are we to continue putting up with these white folk? <laughs> I presented that essay to my peers. I lost a lot of friends after. <laughs> I realized that our politics were not the same but I gained some incredible allies as well. Now I'm a PhD student. I study counseling psychology and mental liberation, helping others achieve what I achieved, but hoping they don't have to go through years and years and years of trauma like I did, especially in the school system. Because of COVID, I got to go back to that school district in North Carolina. And this summer I started a program around mental health and social justice for girls and young women of color. That same school district where I had had so many traumatic experiences. And man, <laughs> helping those girls find this radical self-love and acceptance, watching them realize that they are capable. It just gives me back the life that I feel like was stolen from me back in 2004. So my mental health journey is still being written, but I'm so in love with where it's going. Thank you. was Brianna A. Baker. Brianna is a second-year doctoral student in the Counseling Psychology PhD program at Columbia University, as well as a health equity strategist at Takeda Pharmaceuticals, where she uses her expertise to promote community engagement and diversify clinical research. Her research interests include sociopolitical determinants of mental health, positive Black youth development, and ameliorating socio-historical racial trauma through community-focused program development. Brianna is the co-founder of the Black and Mental Health Initiative, 
which aims to bring together Black mental health researchers, practitioners, and advocates in community. She's also the creator of the Becoming Dr. Baker YouTube channel, where she regularly documents mental health topics specific to BIPOC communities. StoryQuieter is so grateful to Edith and Brianna for sharing their stories with us. The StoryQuieter is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of the StoryQuieter, with assistance from StoryQuieter's Program Director, Nissa Greenberg, and Senior Podcast Editor, Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to StoryQuieter's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, Marketing Manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, and our intern Jamie Banks, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Paula Croxon and Tracy Rowland, and by Gastor Almonte and Paula Croxon with assistance from Manny Jade Garcia. Our theme music is by Ghost. We'll be back next week with more stories live recorded from our shows. Until then, thanks for listening.